Well, will you please turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Ecclesiastes 7, and we're going to be considering 15 verses there, so you'll need to be able to follow along. That's why the guys have some Bibles, and they're making their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention. They'll get one of those to you that's marked for you at Ecclesiastes 7. On the 20th anniversary of his passing, David Bonson presented a retrospective on the life of his father, theologian, philosopher, Christian apologist, author, and pastor Greg Bonson. Greg Bonson was a brilliant man with a keen and quick intellect that served him very well as he defended the faith, both in writing but also in public debates. One of the more memorable of those debates was with atheist Gordon Stein, a debate, a recording of which I have heard and you can find on the, on the internet, just Google the Gordon or the Bonson Stein debate. And of that debate, it can only be said that Bonson crushed Stein. And in the talk that his son David gave, David said this, I've heard from more people about the impact the Bonson-Stein debate had on them than any other part of his recorded legacy. His scholarly contributions to apologetics are by far his most important, and it's in his commitment to a thoroughly biblical apologetic and his proficiency as a Christian philosopher that I most earnestly hope his legacy will be remembered. And then he asked this, Do you ever wonder why the great wave of popular new atheism led by Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and the Sam Harris cabal came about after dad died and those debates were never able to happen? I do. God's ways are not mine and his ways are perfect. But oh, how I long for my dad to be around during that period When the fruit hung lowest. This week I read another, this time scathing remembrance by the New York Times token conservative Russ Douthat on the passing of Playboy founder Hugh Hefner. It said this, Hugh Hefner, gone to his reward, was a pornographer and chauvinist who got rich on And I won't mention what he says first that he got rich on. And then he got rich on consumerism and the exploitation of women. He aged into a leering grotesque in a captain's hat. And he died a pack rat in a decaying manse where porn blared during his pathetic orgies. Hef was the grinning pimp of the sexual revolution. With quaaludes for the ladies and Viagra for himself a father of smut addictions and eating disorders, abortions and divorce and syphilis, a pretentious huckster who published stories few read while doing flesh procurement for celebrities like Bill Cosby, a revolutionary whose revolution chiefly benefited men like himself. And now that death has taken him, we should examine our own sins. Liberals should ask why their crusade for freedom and equality found itself with such a captain and what his legacy says about their cause. 
Conservatives should ask how their crusade for faith and family and community ended up so Hefnerian itself. With a conservative news network that seems to have been run on Playboy Mansion principles and a conservative party that just elected a Playboy as our president. He says you can find these questions being asked, but they are really counterpoints and minor themes. That this should be the case. That only prudish Christians and spoil sport feminists are willing to say that the man was obviously wicked and destructive. Is itself a reminder that the rot Hugh Hefner spread goes very, very deep. Greg Bonson's life was dedicated to advancing and defending biblical truth. Hugh Hefner's life was dedicated to unbridled hedonism that changed our country for the worse. And here's the thing. Bonson died at age 47. And Hefner lived to 91. We sense the inequality, the injustice of it. Just as Solomon did in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 15. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. The righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. As we continue our series, How to Find Meaning in a Meaningless World in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to see the effect that this injustice has on most people and how Christianity provides another and better perspective on it. Let's bow and ask the Lord to help us as we do. Father, thank you for gathering us. Thank you for allowing us to be here, to have your word open before us. Now grant us, Lord, attentive minds and open hearts to receive your truth and to leave here determined to apply what we hear to our lives and circumstances so that we bring glory to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Solomon who wrote about the meaninglessness of this injustice that we sometimes see between the lifespans of the righteous and the wicked is the same man who wrote in the book of Proverbs these words, the fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. And yet in Ecclesiastes, toward the end of his life, he said what we just read in verse 15 of chapter 7. Now remember, a proverb is a general truth. And what you see on the screen is in fact generally true. But throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon is looking at life from what he calls under the sun. Looking at the world and its people and circumstances from the limited, time-bound, secular viewpoint that does not include God. And I say in your outline, that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take it out so that you can follow along. I say there that from an earth-bound perspective... This is what Solomon is telling us in this passage. First of all, from an earthbound perspective, it doesn't matter how you live. From an earthbound perspective, just looking at it under the sun, it doesn't matter how you live. So in response to the injustice of the righteous, sometimes dying early and the wicked living a long life, he says this in verse 16. 
Do not be overrighteous, neither be overwise. Why destroy yourself? Now, you, you look at verse 16 there. Do not be overrighteous or overwise. Some of you may be thinking, finally a verse that can be a life verse for me. You know, this does seem at first glance to be a verse that confirms the way most evangelicals live. Don't take righteousness too seriously. Don't get worked up about holiness. After all, what are you, a legalist? That will be what you'll be called if you do. Take these matters seriously. So what does that mean? Well, that word that's prefixed to righteous and to wise, that word over, can mean, among other things, excess. So we might use it this way, he overdid it. Or I overate. So it's referring to excess. And if used that way, it would be what some call the golden middle. Don't worry too much about being righteous. On the other hand, don't worry too much about wickedness. Just chart a course through life down the middle. Don't get carried away with trying to be righteous. After all, nobody likes a fanatic. But we know that's not what he's saying because it would contradict the rest of Scripture that emphasizes the importance of pursuing a righteous life. Another way to understand the word over attached to righteous and wise is this. Rather than excess, it's because of. We use the word over that way. Don't get upset over that. Don't get upset because of that. So the idea is... Don't be righteous because you think it will bring long life and blessing. As the reality is, that may not be the case. Your life may be cut short even if you live a righteous life. A person who's wicked may live a very long life. Now note in the last part of verse 16 the word destroy. Why destroy yourself? Now, that Hebrew word is used five times in the Old Testament. In the other four occurrences, that word is translated astonish. So here it could be translated, why cause yourself to be astonished or be amazed? That is, don't think that doing right will obligate God to bless you. Don't think that doing right will cause God to give you long life or any other blessing so that you stare in amazement. When the cancer diagnosis comes and someone's stricken down early in life. Now, alternatively, if we think there's no guarantee of blessing in this life, then we may go in the opposite direction. And verse 17 warns us about that opposite direction. It says, do not be over wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? That is, do not be wicked because... Because you're disappointed that there's no guaranteed quid pro quo for your righteousness. If you pursue that wicked lifestyle, then most of the time, in fact, it will strike you down early with the effects of your hard and debased living. Our temptation is to live right for what we expect in this life. And if that possibility then is gone, if it's taken away, then we give up and live wickedly. I knew a woman years ago who was so intent on having the perfect family that she badgered her husband to be the man that she wanted him to be. Meanwhile, 
while he was trying to get it together to meet her expectations, she raised the kids the way she thought was best, which turned out to be a really unrealistic ideal. She took great prides in the compliments she would receive on how well-behaved her several children were. But as the years wore on and her husband did not meet her expectations, and crucially, her children began to show signs of marring the perfect picture that she was painting, she began to question everything. And she sought to blame anything she could, including her church, and began living in a way completely contradictory to all that she had professed. You see, all of that time that she was doing that, she was living in a right way because, because she thought it guaranteed a certain outcome. And when that appeared not to be materializing, she abandoned it. You see that, that many people bargain with God that way? I'll live this way because I expect something in return. Solomon is warning That may not happen. That return may never come. You do what is right because it is right. And then leave the effects up to God. And so when we have that mindset, when the goal is not attained, we may double down to ensure we do get the prize. That is, things are not going the way I thought they were going to go, so I'm not going to double down on keeping all the rules and making sure that I've got all my T's crossed and my I's dotted and this thing will turn around or we'll just give up and go the opposite direction. We react when we don't get what we expect from our righteousness. If we have that mindset. Verse 18 then says this. It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. And so don't let go of your your life so that you start to live in wanton abandonment to what is right. Grasp righteousness, but do it for the right reasons. Do not think righteous thinking because you are, you will have been exempted from life in a fallen world. That is, don't think That as you live this righteous life, and because you live this righteous life, you will be exempt from all the calamities and difficulties that can befall anyone else. In fact, there is no truly righteous person, because righteousness extends not only to what we do, that is how we live, but also to how we think. So a person can do all the right stuff. You can have all your ducks in a row. You can have the perfect picture, perfect family. You can have all the kids who say the right things and play the right part. And all the while, there's our thinking and our motivations. So from an earthbound perspective, it doesn't matter how you live from that perspective. But secondly, in your outline, it also doesn't matter how you think from an earthbound perspective. Verse 19, wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. So here wisdom is clearly commended. The rulers of cities were powerful figures. Today we might think of rulers of nations. They have the power to make decisions that affect the lives of millions. Their decisions can mean wealth or poverty, can mean health or illness, life or death for many. 
And he uses the ten rulers to just be a full number, a full number of rulers. So they are exceedingly strong. But wisdom gives even more strength to the wise, says Solomon. So wisdom is indeed valuable. But it's tainted. And here's why it's tainted, I say in your outline. Because sin is universal. This wisdom, which has its relative value, still is only relative because it's tainted by sin that affects everybody. It's universal. Verse 20. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Now, that may sound familiar to you because there's a famous verse in your New Testament in Romans chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul, who wrote that chapter, gives a catalog of indictments against humanity. And he, in those verses from verse 10 of Romans chapter 3 all the way down to verse 18, he has a series of quotations from the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, to prove that his indictment is accurate and has always been accurate, going back to the beginning. And one of those quotations in his litany of quotations is from here. Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. Sin is universal in that it's affected everyone. And it's also affected every part of everyone. And that's why we refer to sometimes total depravity. Depraved means sinful. And then totally sinful. People misunderstand that sometimes to mean that the Bible teaches that people will always do the worst possible thing. That's not the case. So it's not that everything someone does is the worst thing that could be done. No, it's that in the totality of the individual, they have been tainted and been affected by sin. And the individual is comprised of these three things, mind and will and emotion. Mind, will, and emotion, we note most often associate our sin with will, acts of the will, our choices, the things we do. But the Bible teaches that this sin is found not only in the things we choose to do, but in what we think, our minds. There's intellectual sin, there's emotional sin, and there's volitional sin. So even our wisdom in the way we think is tainted because of universal sinfulness. And because, I say in your outline... Because sin is individual. Sin is universal, but also individual. So it's not just an abstract concept, but rather it affects you and it affects me. It affects us in the way we think and therefore in turn the way we talk and the way we act and the way we feel. Verse 21. Do not pay attention to every word people say. Or you may hear your servant cursing you. Now, how do you know that there's a really good chance that if you listen long enough, you're going to hear somebody cursing you? Verse 22. For because you know in your heart, many times you yourself have cursed others. What's amazing about us is we will engage in these sins of the mind that then come out through the tongue. We will engage in those against others and then we're shocked when it happens to us. And what Solomon's reminding us here is if others are doing it, remember you do it too. 
that everyone does this, that everyone is liable to this. Sin is individual. That's why James said in James chapter 3 and verse 2, anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. And so all of this then leaves us puzzled. All of this leaves us bewildered. Verse 23, all this I tested by wisdom and I said I'm determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So here we are, like Solomon, all of us with a sense of how things should be. We conclude that if we just do what is right, God will give us long life. But the reality is that we sometimes bury the righteous who are very young. We conclude that if we'll just do what's right, then God will give us success. But the reality is that we often find our dreams and our visions of the future crumbling like a house of cards. Let me just stop there for a moment. What happens to the poor people who go to churches where they're told that it's God's will for you to be prosperous and for you to be healthy? When reality strikes, when life in a fallen world comes crashing in, now what? We think that if we do what is right, then people will appreciate us and respect us and follow us But the reality is that we're often criticized and forsaken when we do right. Why does life work itself out that way? Solomon says in verse 23, I'm determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. It was puzzling. Whatever may be, it is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? And hear this, friends. If Solomon couldn't answer the question why, then you and I won't either. Why is this particular thing happening in my life? Why is it going this way? We know that God has his purposes for that. But we don't know what all of those purposes are. He tells us that ultimately he is working all things together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. We know that. We know 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. Thanks be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we may comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. We know that he will use our difficulty in the lives of other people as he brings us through on the other side of it. We know some of his purposes, but we don't know all of those purposes. And Solomon didn't either. And once sin enters the equation, nothing seems to make sense. Justice appears to be thwarted. And this is bewildering. It's puzzling to us. So from an earthbound, under the sun, limited, time-bound perspective, it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter how you think, just from that perspective. And then lastly, in your outline, it doesn't matter how you try. And Solomon tells us he tried. Verse 25. So I turned my mind to understand... To investigate and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. (laughs) But search though he did, he found that it doesn't matter how we try for these reasons. The first is this in your outline, because almost no one gets it right. So I diligently searched for why it is this way. 
But he found that it, it still doesn't matter no, how, no matter how he tries because the truth is almost no one gets it right. Verse 26. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. Now, ladies, let me explain that. And actually, women, you know, catch it on the chin again in the next verses. And I'll explain that as well. But the woman here is a figure of speech referring to sin as an alluring woman. He's not referring to women exclusively. He's talking about those who fall for sin. In other words, foolishness. It's teaching us that to be ensnared by sin is the worst fate that can befall someone. Now, that's not considered to be the case in our society, is it? If you were to ask people, if you were to ask yourself, what do you think is the worst fate that can befall someone? Would the first thing that comes to your mind be to be ensnared in sin? That's what the Bible teaches. People have different ideas for the worst of all possible fates. Poverty. To have your freedom limited. To be considered weird or different. If you're going to be a Christian, by the way, that goes with the terrain. Yet in our society, far from being the worst possible fate, sin is exalted and glorified. But he goes on to tell us that the man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. In spite of the reality of sin, in spite of the puzzle that sin brings, there is a ray of hope here. It is possible to do right and live wisely. We must continually challenge ourselves and each other to do right regardless of the consequences. In so doing, it is possible to plead God, please God. But remember, very few people do it. Almost no one gets it right. Do you remember what Jesus said? Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Almost no one gets it right. And in your outline, nearly everyone gets it wrong. Almost no one gets it right. Nearly everyone gets it wrong. Verse 27 Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered, adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While it was still searching but not founding, finding, and here's this other one, ladies, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Yeah. Those are men chuckling. So what is, what is that about? Well, this might be just, you know, the Bible getting back at the women. You know, for the garden incident. Or for the fact that Jesus' miraculous conception, without the taint of original sin, came because Joseph was not part of the process. And so many people falsely include, if you just remove the men, there wouldn't be any sin. That's not true either. So what is this uh, What is this teaching us? When Solomon says he looked at a thousand men and found one upright, and he looked at a thousand women and didn't find any, don't see it as a sexist statement. He's using a device in Hebrew poetry to show the extreme difficulty in finding one righteous person. He's looking at a thousand where one could be found and a thousand where none were found. 
It's his way of saying poetically, the righteous man and the righteous woman are rare indeed. In fact, it could have just as easily been reversed. I found one upright woman among a thousand, but not one upright man among them all. Very few people, almost everyone gets it wrong. Very few people get it right. So do you ever feel like you're all alone in your attempt to walk with the Lord? There aren't many in our culture attempting to take a stand. It's one of the many reasons that you need a community of faith where people are doing that. Because if you isolate yourself in a world where virtually no one is doing that, it can eat you alive. Remember when Elijah felt like he was the only one who wanted to please God and do right? God told him that there were 7,000 others too, and that was an encouragement. But have you ever paused to think about the fact that there were only 7,000 among the millions of Israel? Friends, we are not alone, but the truly righteous are indeed rare. And so the conclusion is in verse 29. This only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. So what messes it all up, what taints it all, is that what God made originally good has gone wrong because of the fall, because of sin. So how can a man or woman then be righteous in that so that they have a perspective that is not under the sun but from above the sun and they trust this God who made them and made this world and knows what he's doing and therefore even when things don't go as expected, they do not lose heart, they do not lose faith. How can that happen? It can only happen if that individual is changed from the inside out. It can only happen if the sin issue is dealt with. And how is that dealt with? It's dealt with only through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's dealt with only when we recognize that this profile here about the universality of sin, the individuality of sin, applies to every one of us. It applies to you. And therefore, you and I need the work of Jesus Christ applied to you personally. And so how is that done? You realize that you're described here, that you're a sinner. You recognize that Jesus did what you could not do for yourself. He lived the life that because of your sin, you could not live in perfect righteousness. He did. He died the death that you deserve. So he died on the cross for you, and that death on the cross was acceptable to God the Father because of the life he lived. You repent of your sin. Father, I see this sin in myself, in the way I think, in the way I talk, in the way I act, in the way I feel. It's all evidence of what is in my heart. I need a change from the inside out. I ask you to forgive me. I'm now going to go your way, not my way. That's what repentance is. We're going to pray in just a moment. You have opportunity to receive Jesus Christ into your personal life. I'm a sinner. I need you. I need the work that you've done applied to me. So that my sins are forgiven. And then the Bible tells us he gives you his Holy Spirit so that God the Holy Spirit abides with you now every moment of every day. It's not that you no longer sin. You still will sin. But when you sin, he convicts you now. You're going a different direction. You have different desires that come from God. 
Those of us who have come to Christ, let us thank him for doing that work in us and ask him to intensify that work as we live in a fallen world. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for this time to consider what you tell us in your word as it applies to us individually. Lord, we do live in a perplexing world, especially so if only looked at from the perspective under the sun. But you have given us in your word a perspective that is yours, that is the widest possible perspective. Help us, Lord, to adopt that viewpoint about ourselves, about our world, about others, about our circumstance. I ask you, Lord, in your grace, to draw some out of the world into yourself in this sacred moment, seeing their own sins of the mind, of desire, of speech, and of action, all of this showing a problem that is a problem for all humanity that is only solved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we will praise you with our lips. And those of us who know you, we want to praise you with our lives as well. We need your grace and your aid to do that every moment of every day. Oh Lord, we ask you to do this so that we can glorify you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now your take-home truth, if you still have your outline there, is this. Christians and only Christians live lives that ultimately matter.